My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, uh, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is Mary White, who is the author of Coffee Life in Japan, an absolutely insightful and fascinating book about Japanese coffee as well as unique Japanese culture and society. Mary also teaches courses in various topics, including Japan, food, anthropology, and urban anthropology at Boston University. Japanese people started drinking coffee fairly recently compared to their centuries old custom of tea drinking, but Japan's the number five importer of coffee beans as of 2021. Also, over the last century, Japan has developed a remarkably unique coffee shop culture. For example, you may have heard the word kisaten, which is a distinctive style of coffee shop. So, today we'll discuss why Mary got into Japanese coffee culture, how Japanese coffee culture differs from the rest of the world, what functions coffee shops perform uniquely in Japan- Japanese society, the concept of kisaten, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan News is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write to a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Mary White. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So,、uh, I was suggested by a couple of my friends that I should definitely have you on the show. So, I'm very honored to have you here. Yes, it's, it's, it's been a while since we talked, but I'm so happy to join you at last. Right? Yeah, maybe it was two years ago. Very cold winter night. <laughs> we met in、yeah. the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So,、uh, First of all, I have so many questions because your book is amazing.、Uh, so, first of all, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up?、Uh, well, you know, my, like many Americans, I'm from many places,、um, but mostly I guess I am from the Midwest part of America. And the timing of my growing up was, at a, was uh, wartime, uh, 1940s and 1950s,、uh, and、uh, food was not.、Um, A very high topic for discussion.、Uh, in the wartime, we had ration stamps, and so there w a s limitations on what we ate. But I also came from an area where food was very simple and、uh, very simple boiled things, meatloaf, not a high level of、uh, interest or taste. But when we moved to the East Coast, Things suddenly changed for me, and still in the 1950s,、uh, there was a kind of culture of、uh, denying taste in Boston. You know, you weren't supposed to pay attention to food. And the other thing was, people didn't eat other people's food. That is, whatever ethnic group you belonged to, you ate your food. You didn't cross over into other people's food. So it was kind of a new thing by the 1960s. 
to eat, for example, for me, uh, Italian food or Chinese food. In the Midwest, we didn't, have, my people didn't eat pizza. We didn't, uh, we, we really didn't, didn't explore. It wasn't common. So for me, the big coming of age in food wasn't and really until the 1970s when everything suddenly was available. Mm, interesting. Wow. How the world changed so much. And you are now <laughs> Japanese experts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a long trail, right? right. I, uh, but Japanese food was uh, certainly not on anybody's radar. Um, you know, but it was interesting because I became interested in Japan as a child, uh, not necessarily food, but my toys were all marked made in occupied Japan, because I grew up in that period. So my toys intrigued me. What is Japan? And I didn't understand occupied, but, you know, later I did. But in high school, I became very interested um, in Japan because it seemed in the 1950s that people in Boston were more interested in Europe. I, Of course, I was interested in Europe, but... Japan seemed more exciting, more far away, and I went to the the high school library, and I looked at the globe, and I said, how far away from home can I get? And I pointed to the globe, and it said Japan. So (laughs) I I literally had this kind of simple-minded beginning, and I read everything in the high school library that had to do with Japan for this arbitrary reason. But... When I got to college, the very first thing I did was study Japanese language. Um, and in those days, people didn't travel very much. Uh, certainly, my family did not. And so only when I graduated from college, after taking Japanese language and courses about Japan for four years, only then did I get on my first airplane ride and my first passport and I went directly to Japan. But the interesting thing was, in the early 1960s, you did never, never go directly to Japan because we would, didn't have a jet plane ride. So you, <laughs> from Boston, Chicago, Denver, uh, I don't remember, Los Angeles, Wake Island, Midway Island, Hawaii, and finally Tokyo, because the planes needed to refuel. So it was a real adventure to even just to go to Japan. Mm, right. Okay. So and and of course you <laughs> you said <clears throat> sorry you went to Harvard for bachelor's, master's, and PhD, and really kept deepening your understanding of Japanese uh, anthropology and Japanese culture, and then you ended up writing the amazing uh, insightful book Coffee Life in Japan in twenty twelve. <laughs> So, I mean, by, by the way, listeners, I highly recommend that you read it to understand the unique, very obscure and intriguing, intriguing aspects of Japanese culture, because there are not many books that covers that aspects of Japanese culture. So why did you write this book? <laughs> well, it's interesting. The book came to me. I, I didn't seek the book. Um, the, um, when I first went to Japan, as I said, it was 1963. I was just that two two days before I graduated from college, so I came from a college culture which was very much in those days about cafes and coffee. So I immediately in Japan found so many coffee shops. Uh, at, at that was a very high peak time of coffee culture in Japan in 1960s. Um, and they had old-style coffee houses as well as new-style ones. And I felt completely comfortable in Japanese coffee houses because that was my culture too. So in that beginning, I was unconscious of coffee as a topic for research. I just did it all the time. So after many, many years, I finally realized, wait, I'm in coffee houses all the time. Why don't I study them? So that's the the old habit of coffee in Japan became a different kind of conscious focus in uh, about the year 2000 
so <laughs> after about 40 years, I finally studied what I was doing anyway. Mm, right. So um, as I said earlier, as of January 2021, Japan is the number five importer of coffee beans after the US, Germany, France, and Italy. So, but drinking coffee is not traditional in Japan at, at all. So what is the history of Japanese coffee culture? The history of Japanese coffee culture goes back a very long way. Um, coffee came to Japan really in the 1500s. Uh, the Portuguese missionaries and traders were fought, they brought coffee. Even before coffee became popular in Europe, it was, had arrived in Japan. But at first, it came as medicine. It was seen as like Chinese medicine. It was seen as herbal remedy. And the interesting thing was the first Japanese who tried coffee as a medicine used it to cure insomnia, used it to help them sleep. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting because Americans are so conscious of, you know, not drinking coffee after, I don't know, four o'clock or something. I drink it to sleep. I drink it the last thing in the day. Um, the Dutch followed to Japan, bringing coffee as well. Uh, in uh, They were positioned in Dejima near Nagasaki um, as traders. Um, and coffee began to be, interestingly, began to be drunk by Japanese in Nagasaki, uh, the first ones who drank it for pleasure or for uh, as a social beverage were the prostitutes of, of Nagasaki, whose clients were the Dutch traders. So the Dutch traders gave the prostitutes uh, coffee beans as a kind of gift, uh, and those were the first people who really understood it to be uh, for pleasure and not only for medicine. Um, the next uh, arrivals of coffee, um, it, it gradually took hold, but it still wasn't a thing to drink so much uh, as a public beverage until the Japanese farmers who were taken on ships to Brazil helped to start the Brazilian coffee economy at the end of the 19th century. Um, and these Japanese farmers became, um, were, were helping to bring coffee back to Japan. Uh, the Brazilian government wanted to increase uh, the uh, supply of coffee to Japan as their target market. Um, Japan was targeted by Brazilians as a market for coffee beans even before uh, they were targeting other countries. So people think, well, Japan, it's green tea. But actually, for a very long time, it's been coffee. In fact, the first coffee house chain, uh, cafe chain, um, was created in Japan uh, through the Brazilian connection, and they were called the Cafés Paulista because of the reference to Sao Paulo in Brazil. Mm. So by the time um, the um, coffee uh, came to Japan in serious amounts, it was a public social beverage. Mm. Right. So uh, for listeners who's not familiar with Japanese history in Brazil, like why the Japanese people in Brazil? So there's, a, I think, around 1930s, there are Japanese immigrants to find a better life. Uh, they went to Brazil. And there is a relationship with the Japanese far farmers start working in Brazil. So that's an interesting connection. Um, yeah, so so the now you mentioned that, you know, the cafe. So briefly, so what the Japanese coffee houses have very unique forms and styles. So what's the history of Japanese coffee houses before Paulista? Uh, it's kind of a wonderful history, coffee houses in Japan, because <clears throat> at first um, they, uh, they grew up as a separate kind of social space, not like chaya, not like the old tea houses at all. They were places where all different kinds of people could come. Um, <clears throat> different social classes. Uh, <clears throat> at first, it was mostly men. 
I'll tell you the story of one, the first coffee house in Japan that really is historically recognized was called Kahi Chakan. So it has the word cha in it, which is tea, but it really means social space. Kahi Chakan was founded uh, <clears throat> by a young man who was the son of a Chinese interpreter for the Japanese foreign ministry, in, based in, in uh, Nagasaki, actually. Um, and uh, this young man, um, born in Japan, was sent to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, in the uh, 18, uh, late 1870s, 1880s, <clears throat> um, to study to become an international kind of new Japanese-Chinese person. Um, but he was too involved with going to New York all the time, where there were these huge coffee houses, very luxurious places. He got uh, so taken by coffee houses that he failed out of Yale. He was sent away um, because he wasn't paying any attention to scholarship. <laughs> so his parents, his father got very upset, of course, and said, all right, you have to do something to come back to Japan, but go to Europe first. And he went to London. And London was another really fantastic coffee uh, place with these huge, beautiful coffee houses, again, very masculine, uh, with big old armchairs and newspapers and uh, writing desks, all kinds of uh, amenities. Um, so the young man, whose name in Japanese is Teike, uh, it became Nishimura later, um, went to Japan and started uh, Japan's first official coffee house, this place I called Kahi Chakan, <clears throat> in the early 1880s. Um, let's see, wait a minute. Yes, um, and its <clears throat> location was in the Ueno area of Tokyo very entertainment kind of area. It was fabulous. People loved it. But the man didn't have a sense of business. He just had a sense of treating his customers well. So he went broke with all the amenities he offered his customers. Um, the, the coffee house failed, but there is a monument on that site in Ueno Hirokoji that shows that this is the first coffee house. And he is quite famous, uh, although a failure in his own life. Um, so that kind of coffee house remained, a kind of masculine, uh, men-only coffee shop of very great uh, social importance. Mm, right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I really have to, next time I have to go to Veno and check where it was. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Because um, the first, it was, you know, the part of the foreign um section of Japan, where Japan was tightly closed. And then there was one uh, crack of the culture coming in, thanks to that Chinese, um, ethnic Chinese, Japanese-born person. And then, um, yeah, so the, you, you mentioned the Cafe Paulista. So Cafe Paulista um, was opened in 1911, as far as I know. And uh, that was really uh, the first place that offered reasonable coffee, you know, compared to other expensive, newly developed um, dining establishments, it's only like a third of the price um, that they can have a cup of coffee uh, with a high quality. And so so last time I was in Japan, it was before COVID, and I passed by the Cafe Paulista in Ginza, Tokyo, mm -hmm. not, not knowing anything about the history. The, the, there's an aura from the entrance, that's such a great historic look. And yeah. I, I picked inside, I was exactly, I almost just stepped into another century. <laughs> so it's still there and uh, yes. hopefully it survived uh, the COVID. But. That's right. It's no longer a chain so much uh, in, in, in the early uh, 20th century. There were coffee Cafe Paulista in Osaka as well. It was a it was a, a national chain, so it's kind of interesting that Japan was ahead of uh, 
uh, Starbucks <laughs> and mm. creating a chain culture. Right. Uh, but yeah, now now there's a lot of nostalgia for the older co- styles of coffee houses. Um, um, if you go to uh, these classic places, there there's Cafe Lion uh, in Shibuya. There's uh, and these are all from uh, you know the pre-war era. Hmm. Right. Well, by, by the way, listeners, uh, if you read Mary's book, A Coffee Life in Japan, there's a list of the coffee shops. I, next time I have <laughs> to bring the book and I really, really visit each one of them. So, yeah, so, yeah. Now that, so we're going to get into that classic types of, you know, coffee shops now. But uh, before that, there's different types of coffee shops now in Japan, right? So what yeah. types of coffee houses exist in Japan, in the modern Japan? Um, you know, contemporary coffee is extremely diverse. Um, there are chain stores. Um, there's Dotor, and uh, it's, you know, there's low-end and high-end coffee everywhere. Um, the classic Kisaten, uh, the old kind of, you know, they've existed for a long time. They're very wonderful, and there's a kind of movement to preserve some of those, this, some uh of uh, the Kisaten have a lot of nostalgia, especially among the aging population of Japan who remember their youth in coffee houses. Um, it's seen as a kind of ideal life by some people, you know, maybe to retire and start the old style classic Kisaten. Um, young couples is a kind of fad now or trend for young couples to begin a coffee house together. It's a kind of together work. Um, the um there's also in the world of coffee the arrival of Starbucks in the uh late twentieth century. Um Starbucks has some issues connected with it in Japan. Uh people who are very serious coffee people will not go to Starbucks and they have a sort of denigrating word they call it staba, you know. <laughs> and, or or they call it charbucks. Do you know why? Charbucks? Uh, because the when you over roast coffee beans, it's called charring or burning the bean. <laughs> and, and the statement about charba about Starbucks is that they over roast the beans in order to hide some of the defects of the bean, because when you over-roast something, it only tastes dark. It doesn't have very subtle taste. So there's the, um, <clears throat> there, there are plenty of independent coffee houses in Japan now, uh, some of which are about what in the West is called uh, specialty coffee. Um, and specialty coffee has many meanings. Uh, but uh, there's an interest in, for example, the point of origin of the beans. Uh, what, what, where were the beans grown and under what conditions? There's also interest in environmentalism. So some cafes talk about uh, the uh, good conditions for the growing of the beans. Some people are interested in the quality of life of the growers themselves uh, whether they are paid enough. So there's that kind of, of, of interest in the origin as well. Um, there's even environmental interest. Uh, uh, you know, our beans are, some people say, bird-friendly. They're grown to protect birds or something like that. So there's many different uh, positions about coffee that are reflected in varieties of cafes. Most mm. of all, the the newer independent coffee houses are about having a particular style of uh, the treatment of the beans, um, roasting. Um, the some of the newer coffee houses <clears throat> um, involve uh, the roasting of the beans on site. For example, you don't get your beans from a roaster. Uh, that. That has um, its own, you know, personality of the roaster involved with it. Mm. Um, right. And th- in your book, you discuss also that, um, you know, house blend, not just they roast the beans in-house, but they blend different yeah. beans. 
to, you know, I think that America is very single origin and dominant uh, market,、yeah. but they have really personal touch and preference to perfect the combination, the flavors. So that's a very Japanese minded coffee making, I think. Well, I think, I mean, we have blends in America too, but blends are not trusted because Americans don't think that a blend is, is as pure. Um, and also, they might be suspicious of a blend that you're trying to hide cheap beans by mixing them or something. So, this,、uh, the idea of the blend in Japan, as you said, is something very special. It, it involves the, you know, taking the qualities of one bean and mixing it with the qualities of another bean. It's very difficult to make a good blend. So, you're trusting the master, you know. you're... You, the master's blend is something better than the sum of its parts. So it's a very different perception of what a blend is. And it involves high quality beans and not suspiciously low quality beans. <laughs> right, that's interesting. So if you go to、um, you know, sushi restaurants, there's a word often used, omakase, or many kaiseki restaurants. So omakase means leave it to the chef. So there's、yeah. a similar mindset. There is a、yeah. trusting relationship between customers and whoever offers the service、yeah. and the value. That's a very good point about trust. And yes, omakase、uh, means I leave it to you because you know better than I do. I think an American wants to know better. <laughs> the, the customer is always right, you know, that idea.、Um, and that Americans want. To make their assert their personality through their own choice. So I think that's a little different. Although、uh, a lot of us,、uh, you know, my, the coffee houses I go to in America understand,、uh, you know, that idea that、uh, they do know something and that we can trust them. So、uh, you, you can find some of that here as well. I think we learned it from Japan. Mm, right. And I, I think that trust should exist. They deserve trust because they work extremely hard. And like judo, kendo, which is the way of meaning, there's no perfection, but you keep pursuing it. That's the mindset of those、mm. craftsmen. And、yeah. that spirit runs through the coffee culture. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think this idea also connects to. The idea of service in,、uh, in consumer establishments. You know, the idea that in Japan, the, the, the word omotenashi, you know, is service, but it, in America, service is not such a high level job description element. It's, you know, the,、uh, it's sort of secondary.、Uh, although I think that we pay attention when there's good service. We give tips in America when there's good service.、Um, but, but still, I think the elevation of you know, making a wonderful cup for the person in front of you is really part of kisaten culture and specialty coffee culture in Japan as well.、Mm-hmm. So that You know, the, the relationship between the maker and the receiver is so important in Japan.、Um, right. And I, you can feel that in a good coffee house.、Mm, right. So you mentioned omotenashi.、Uh, I think the omotenashi means、uh, the service without expecting any returns. It's just coming out of your,、yeah. you know,、yeah. just gratitude and、uh, just love for whatever exists within that environment. So, but now you mentioned kisaten. I think kisaten is really、uh, the essence of Japanese coffee culture in one way. So, maybe what is kisaten? You can tell us what kind of,、uh, you know, is exactly what is the concept of kisaten? <laughs> the content? I'm sorry? Yeah, the concept of kisaten. The culture of、what? the kisaten.、Right. Oh, that's, that's really a very personal culture, you know?、Um, the owner, the. Uh, the owner's personality,、uh, you know, this idea of nostalgia. The ambience is often、uh, what is called,、uh, you know, the, the color sepia, sepia, 
brown, the brown culture of a kisaten, the, this kind of old wood and old leather, this idea of an, uh, a place that's been there forever. <laughs> um, but even young people like to go to these places to absorb something um, beyond the coffee itself. Often the kisaten will have a kind of coffee making that is particular to that kisa. Um, in Kyoto, there's many uh, siphon coffee kisa. Um, siphon, siphon is a method of, it's a kind of laboratory looking glass device, very, very old. It was brought to Japan in about 1740, uh, I think by Dutch. Uh, it's an old European method, but it has become a kind of coffee style among older kisaten. And maybe it's especially in Kyoto, but you can find these places where the making of the coffee in front of the customer, you know, on a uh, counter is a performance. Um, and we'll, we can talk about also pour over coffee as a kind of performance that the maker of the coffee is giving to the customer along with the cup of coffee as well. So that kind of, um, is, you know, the, the predictable, uh, very good coffee, along with the attention, that personal attention, as you said, without expecting a return that goes into omen, om, omotenashi, um, you know, the performance, the personality, the ambience, the physical ambience, even the smell of an old coffee house is uh, really part of the experience. Another thing that's part of the experience of a kisa is uh, moningu or moningu seto, or it, the morning uh, service is uh, really uh, something that people really love. And that is breakfast, a kind of breakfast that's served only and really only in cafes uh, and only in these kind of older style cafes is it very uh, you know, kind of uh, almost ritualistic. It's a, w- a really inexpensive way of eating you get uh, these beautiful pig pieces of toast, very thick, high uh, milk toast uh, and and butter and an egg usually and a salad, which is, I think, unique to a Japanese coffee house breakfast. Um, so that's part of the service, but it's also uh, part of uh, an experience um, that's very important. There are towns in Japan where morning set in cafes uh, is very famous, like Nagoya. Nagoya has extremely competitive morning service uh, breakfasts. They're not a Japanese breakfast. They're not, you know, rice and miso soup and pickles and fish. They're, they're, They're a particular breakfast that has emerged in Japan as associated with a coffee house. Yes, it has Western elements, but it is extremely Japanese. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's very interesting. So basically, I think throughout Japan, there are kisaten. And it's it's like kisaten is more of the place to sit down and chill out and just be calm. There's no loud music. And it's just very personal place, which is a reflection of the owner's personality and uh it's just a soothing area of yeah. our own life. And uh, so you also mentioned Siphon. I think uh, Blue Bottle Coffee, um, you know, the James T. founder, he loved Japanese coffee culture. So he opened uh, one shop with Siphon uh, makers. And I think they stopped doing that. But yeah. Siphon is a very um, highly technical and the consistency of the product, I heard is very not guaranteed, but it's so visually interesting and so chic that I happened to find one place in Kyoto. And like you said, you know, Kyoto seems to be a good place to find a siphon coffee. And, uh, uh-huh. but it's so random. So I, one, one morning I was on the way to traveling around just the country. And then in the very busy uh, station building, there's a, they're serving breakfast and they're like a little siphon coffee maker. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's, yeah. it doesn't seem like very appropriate, but they do um, have some uh, respect to decent coffee to be served. 
regardless yeah. of the situation. You know, what? what's very interesting about what you just said is there, there was a very busy station, you said, that had siphon coffee. And siphon coffee is a very slow method, you know. And so you you have all these very busy people trying to catch their trains, but taking the time, as you said before, taking the time to be quiet and watch the coffee being made. I think that's a wonderful contrast. Um, the The idea of being private in a public space is also something, besides being quiet and calm, uh, being somebody you are not in other spaces in your life. So the Kisa gives you a chance to be private, but also we, you know, also engage just yourself. Of course, you could be social in a Kisa, but it's very common to be very quiet. And I think that's something that's missing in the rest of people's lives. Mm, right. So, and you mentioned earlier, you know, chain coffee shops like uh, Dotor. They say Dotor. Dotor, I, I heard there are over 1,300 shops uh, and in each prefecture in Japan, like 47, because it's so mm-hmm. popular. But it's, they, people use it for meeting place, study place, just like stop in. And the coffee name may not be as great as Kisaten, but it's casual, reasonable. But then when you go to Kisaten, it's a very different world. It's almost like classic um, cocktail bar, kind of. Some like, yeah. sacred idea of the air is different and uh, it's very comfortable. So That's right. Yeah. That's right. And There's, there are so many functions for coffee houses and so many different types that, you know, for one purpose, you can go to a coffee shop in the morning on your way to work to have a quiet moment before work or have your breakfast and later in the morning you could have a meeting at the coffee, a different coffee house that has more is good for talking and then another time you might be going because you're a friend of the coffee maker um so there's so many different functions or you could go for a date you know i mean there's the 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 coffee houses are all different from each other because their functions are also very different right and uh also, um, one of the keywords you said in the book a couple of times and uh, wrote a lot about it, that's uh, kodawari. So oh. kodawari is, I think, really a symbolic term to represent Japanese uh, coffee culture. So yeah. what is kodawari? Oh, it's such a word. In fact, I think sometimes... Uh, especially Westerners hear this word and think, oh, this is the secret of Japan. <laughs> or, <laughs> the, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, we have to we have to adopt kodawari to be successful or something. So let's not overuse it, but it is certainly something people talk about. Kodawari can mean caring and focus and attention Um but it has become a kind of branding word, you know, this is Kodawari coffee, or, or this person is Kodawari. Uh, the, uh, um, it is about paying attention. I think that might be the best way of thinking about it, is paying attention to the way you do something uh, and giving it your total uh, focus. Uh, uh, some people think it's like obsessiveness. I think that may be part of it, but I don't think you need to call it obsession. Uh, and I think this total focus, there's a cafe I often go to in Kyoto when I get to Kyoto. Um, it's called Factory Cafe. Now, it sounds industrial, but it's not. It's uh, one of the few women woman-owned cafes it's very, very kodawari. Um, <laughs> you you find it very almost by accident. It's very hidden. Um, you go up in this old building and you find uh, a long hallway, and then you find a door, and it's not marked. Um, and you go in, and <clears throat> the um, the coffee person, um, her, her nickname is Sachan. Um, uh, Sachan doesn't pay any attention to you when you come in. Uh, you think, oh, this is not polite, 
because usually someone greets you, right? You go into any kind of establishment and someone says, Irashai, or something to greet you. But she doesn't because she is so intensely focused on the cup of coffee she is making for a customer that she cannot distract herself by greeting a new customer. So that intense focus is really an example of this kind of kodawari. Her coffee is wonderful. I mean, it, you cannot find a better cup. She only makes pour-over coffee, which does demand your full attention. Um, so that, um, that might be an example of a style of coffee influencing the way in which it is made and thus the relationship with the customer too. Mm, wow. Well, traditionally, Kisaten's uh, owner is called the master, like master. <laughs> right, and then right. used to be like, uh, you know, older man, but now younger woman taking over, that's, well, not only just taking over, joining the leadership of the coffee culture. That sounds amazing. Right, right. And they're, they can still be called master. But she's kind of revolutionary. So this woman, I would not want to be called Master. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm actually not sure what anyone would call her, but she might be Ona. Um, mm. but she is definitely a master in the professional sense. Mm. Right. So, um, just so, so I think uh, our listeners can get some ideas of what kisaten is like. And another thing is, uh, you know, if you go to classic kisaten, you you often hear classical music or jazz, mm-hmm. and uh, that's, well, you know, I think uh, that's because there's the time, long time out in nineteen twenties when uh, kisaten became popular. You know, uh, people not poor, people tend to be poor, so they couldn't afford buying you know, records on the music system, so they went to Kisaten, right? right. Is that the history? That, that is really the, the, the ways in which Kisaten, when they, uh, classic cafes, um, when they emerged as a new kind of social space, they could take on all kinds of new things, and new things including recorded music. Um, so the idea, yes, and it is true that uh, most people could not afford to get, you know, uh, recordings and recording uh, devices uh, or playing devices at home. So uh, if they could go to concerts, live concerts, but the idea of going to a space that was devoted to listening to music was another novelty um, that just uh, coffee houses could take in everything. They also took in new kinds of food in the 19 teens. Uh, the first spaghetti was served in a cafe. But the uh, that kind of thing, it's a place of novelty at the beginning. Now, of course, we associate all these classical music or jazz cafes with ancient things. But then it was considered a novelty. Now, the classical music cafes now, they persist. Uh, there's one called Ryugetsudo in Kyoto, um, and uh, that Cafe Lion is in is a uh, jazz cafe. Um, the, um, the classical music cafes now are really about listening. So the Ryugetsudo has strict rules for how you must not talk in this cafe. You must not uh, uh, even there are tables where it says you must not write because writing will make a sound and disturb the sound of the <laughs> classical music. So it's very uh, rigid or strict, but it's pure. The purity of the classical music cafe in that case was uh, extreme. Jazz cafes usually are a little more relaxed, but they can also be focused on the music and not so much on the coffee. But it is out of this historical moment when to listen to music required a special condition that most people could not manage. Mm, right. So it's amazing that that kind of a very old, uh, unique style of coffee shop still exists in some places. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Right. And jazz is still very important in Japan. Um, so um, whereas it's kind of hard to find uh, good jazz, well, in New York you can, but 
uh, you know, it's 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 harder, and it's not so much associated with uh, cafes anymore in America. It used to be. It used to be that coffee and jazz went together. One interesting thing about cafe history in Japan and jazz is that um, classical uh, uh, music and jazz were associated with coffee and not so much with alcohol. Jazz was considered an intellectual uh, music, uh, and so it went with things, it was called dry, dry. So dry equaled coffee, and wetto, uh, or you know, blues and popular music, uh, were wet though were associated with alcohol, so cabarets had uh, that certain kinds of music and alcohol, whereas cafes had uh, classical or jazz and coffee. Mm, interesting. All right, so uh, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss the modern style coffee shops that are thriving in Japan. So please stay with us. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a cheese landian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a cheese landian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Kwatema, and my guest today is Mary White, who is the author of Coffee Life in Japan, an absolutely insightful and fascinating book about Japanese coffee as well as unique Japanese culture and society. So,、um, so in the world of coffee,、um, there's the term third wave, and the first wave was in, I think, 1960s and commodity driven and mass consumption and、uh, dominance of bulk brew filter coffee. I think it's you see it in America. And the second wave coffee was led by branded chains such as Starbucks, and coffee became a luxury product rather than necessity. And the third wave is all about artisanal coffee, focus on quality, micro roasting, handcrafting, and sourcing transparency. And, and some people say that's a false wave, which celebrates the science of coffee, blah, blah, blah. But so, Based on this,、uh, how is Japanese coffee culture taking that new waves of coffee? I think it's very interesting to think of these waves.、Um, by the way, the, th- the term third wave was created by、uh, a wonderful coffee expert in America named Trish Rothgeb, and she really itemized how、uh, the particularities of coffee,、uh, what you mentioned, point of origin, the idea of single bean,、uh, the types of preparation, how that diversification. And particularity of coffee and coffee making and the attention to its origins created something called third wave.、Um, what I found when I came to Japan is that Japan was actually creating the next wave and disseminating it to the rest of the world. And one of the ways in which 3.5 wave or fourth wave、uh, were created in Japan, I would say. Um, was through new,、um, the perfection of the equipment of coffee as well as the perfection of the making, the techniques of coffee. So, for example, there are two big、uh, coffee technology companies making the equipment,、uh, which are very low tech equipment, some of them, and that is Hario and Kalita.、Uh, those two companies have sent all over the world. Their、uh, pour over devices, their simple, you know, little coffee filter holders. And these are extremely well made and、uh, help you to produce these wonderful new kinds of,、uh, of very fine tuned tastes in coffee. 
the high quality of beans, the high quality of production, uh, the high quality of performance of the making of coffee, all those what are called the three highs of Japanese coffee making are um, part of why we are heading into fourth wave coffee. And I really do believe that Japanese specialty coffee's high standards have created that, uh, that what we calling a fourth wave. I'm not so sure that using the term fourth wave is super helpful in defining the experience of coffee. Um, In fact, I would like to take that idea and bring it down to a new generation coffee shop reflecting that new wave. And one that I would point to is called Onibus. And it's very, very, very personal. It's not very high-tech, but it is, everything is on-site. It's a very tiny place. Onibus is uh, near Nakameguro in Tokyo, um, not far <laughs> from the ex- exact opposite kind of establishment, which is the Starbucks uh, giant roastery that was just built there. Um, that that's extremely high tech, but Onibus represents the fourth wave of Japanese coffee because it, from the beginning to the delivery of the cup of coffee to the customer, everything is uh, very highly thought about, considered. So that attention again, if you want to go back to the word kodawari, it might be there, but this idea of the space in which everything happens. I think could be called Japanese fourth wave coffee. The personal, for example, at Onibus, every bag of coffee is sorted on a big tray and the number of defective beans, you know, they're removed and counted. So, and then the roasting takes place there. It's a giant, actually German roaster machine there. And that roasting is monitored minute to minute, visually with your eyes not by some uh, computer technique. Um, so then Onibos preparation of the coffee, and by the way, they believe, and I think many people do, that you do not serve a coffee made with beans that are roasted uh, immediately. You must give the beans 24 hours to rest after roasting. The, the statement somebody gave me was, the beans have been wounded by roasting and must recover. So even that, even that little detail of how long it takes after roasting for the beans to be ready for making. Um, so everything on site and everything uh, watched by the same eyes, I think that might be what we're calling a fourth wave with, of course, behind it, some kind of personal sense of the science of coffee. Mm. Well, I never thought the fourth wave could belong to Japanese coffee culture. So uh, <laughs> that's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, uh, Kaita and uh, Hario, these are amazing, um, you know, coffee equipment makers. And I found, I think I found a Hario V60, which is really the fundamental uh, coffee yeah. making machine. Yeah, I mean, there's a brand a new tool. one. Yeah. Right. That's I think I see in Whole Foods even. So that's pretty permeating into American coffee making culture too at yeah. home. Right. Um, so the, you know, you mentioned this, you know, the quality oriented Japanese coffee uh, culture. So in your book, you argue that Japanese specialty coffee, coffee has a high standard. So what is the reason behind the superior quality by the global standard? You know that um, high standards in Japan have meant that other countries and other people are paying attention to Japanese coffee and using it to measure their own development uh, against. So, uh, yeah, uh, Japanese standards, um, the three highs I mentioned, you know, the high, the high uh, level of quality of production of the beans and the high level of treatment of the beans and then the high level of uh, performance making the coffee for the customer. Those three highs are said to be behind the high standard. And, you know, other when, when there is a, a new varietal of coffee beans, say, for example, in the country of Panama, 
they, if they have produced a new bean, a hybrid or something like that, then uh, it might be sent to Japan to uh, get the judgment of Japanese coffee experts before they go into big production. That wow. is how, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is good evidence for the recognition of Japanese superior quality. Mm, interesting. Well, I think, well, the coffee culture, after speaking with you for, you know, last time, for a couple minutes, I mean, at 40, 30, 40 minutes, I really think that coffee culture is representing everything Japanese, like kodawari to the meticulousness, pursuit of perfection, even if it's not possible, and the mutual trust and hospitality. Everything's kind of put into coffee Japanese coffee culture. Yeah, the um, how how the coffee culture ties with other activities in Japan is also very interesting. That is, the um, experiences of coffee also resemble other experiences, um, and I, I think those you know what you're calling this kind of attention and um, focus might uh, be seen in, um, I don't know, textile manufacture. Um, you probably know that Japanese denim, that Americans just, you know, wear blue jeans, right? Japanese denim is now like Japanese coffee. It's a standard for the world. And because of this kind of attention to all the a- a- elements that go into it, um, one of the things to consider is how a crisis might affect something that this high level. We are now in the pandemic. And I think that one of the things to think about is how coffee has been affected and the experience of cafes has been affected by this. We're all wanting to get away from home. You know, we all Mm. want to go to those places called cafes and, um, Japanese specialty coffee and the coffee of these, you know, wonderful little personal spaces, even the coffee of old-fashioned ka- kisa, um, is is a per- a social experience as well as a personal one. We're missing the social experience, um, and I think that one of these one of the ideas is how to make how to reach people through coffee the way we always have reached pe- people through coffee in social spaces. Um, so I'm, I'm considering thinking when I can go back to Japan of interviewing people about what the um, high levels and the standards, what happened to coffee during this very difficult time um, and whether Japanese coffee has developed in new ways because of the pandemic. So I'm taking your question in a different direction, but I've been thinking about that for the future. Mm, Right. And then you find the answer, you come back and discuss again. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Right. Um, Yeah, it's it's amazing that, uh, but again, listeners, this book is really interesting. And I, you know, I I was like, well, I... Try to skim as quickly as possible so that I can prepare the question. That's why I usually approach new book for any like interviews or show preparation. But then I got stuck and I have to uh-huh. go uh-huh. through cover to cover. So that's one of the very well written, amazing books. So well, thank well, you I, so much. I I I never know who who will be interested in such an unusual topic. <laughs> well, I, I really love coffee, so. Yeah, I have to say. But I have to ask this question. So what coffee do you drink at home in Boston? Oh, ah, well, because I can't go to a cafe, you know, <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, so I, I make a Japanese-style pour-over coffee. I make it with a hario uh, and actually a, a kind of modified hario uh, filter holder. Uh, uh, I use Kalita filters, papers. Um, I grind my coffee. Uh, well, it's it's it sounds very fussy, I, I'm sure, but um, the I really have because I go to Japan. I'm afraid I have been spoiled, 
So I can't drink, uh, you know, I can. Uh, of course, I will drink any cup of coffee someone gives me because I enjoy <laughs> coffee. But I, uh, I make my coffee by uh, heating fresh water. And while I'm heating the water to the boiling point, I uh, grind the coffee then and not before, because as soon as you grind the coffee, it begins to die, you know. You can't use pre-ground coffee in my, you know, <laughs> fussy experience. Uh, and, of course, the roasting date has to be within 10 days. Um so that's complicated because you have to find someone. I don't roast my coffee because I, I do have a home roaster, but I don't roast it because I know how difficult it is to do it well. And I'm not a specialist. I'm not an expert. But I, mm. I do get very good beans. Um, sometimes blue bottle beans are, are available. Sometimes uh, there's a company called Intelligentsia, which is very, very good roasting. Um but so I get my beans uh, from a trusted roaster. But after the water is boiled, I let it sit to cool down a little. And I put the ground beans into the, <laughs> into the holder. Uh, and then I start to pour in that spiral in and spiral out method. There are some good videos online of uh, um, one of my favorite pour over experts in Kyoto at a shop called Otafuku. Uh, he's really, really good. It's a real performance. It's almost like watching a ballet dancer. Um, so that I can't do perfectly, but I do it, you know, well enough. But what I'm missing is the social experience. What I'm missing is the relationship with the bar people who make the coffee for me. And what I especially miss is the five or six coffee shops in Japan, which are my absolute best experiences. So, uh, yeah, you can't have it perfect, but you can treat yourself by paying attention just to the coffee you make for yourself. Mm, right. You can be uh, the master of your own uh, coffee shop. <laughs> well, only, only, only in my own kitchen and alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only place I'm a master. <laughs> right. Well, that sounds very meditative too. All right. So uh, where can we find your updates online and social media? You can write to me. I'm actually not very a uh, social media person, but you're encouraging me and perhaps I will set up a website. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I mm. am in uh, the pre-jet plane generation, so I'm also in the pre-website <laughs> generation. But I think it's I think you're encouraging me to uh, present myself more. And I would like to um, start with my next trip to Japan to make a kind of updated list of visits. Uh, the list of visits to coffee houses that's in the book is a little bit out of date now, although many of them are still there, of course. At least I hope so. Right. Okay. So uh, so is there any way to uh, you can find your... Um, you don't have any social media or you can just uh, email you or something well, like that. Um, it, it's, <laughs> it's really kind of accidental. So what I'm going to do uh, is because of your encouragement, I am going to start a website. I am on Facebook um, <clears throat> and I do talk about coffee occasionally on Facebook. So uh, that's one way of finding me. Um, and uh, sometimes I use Instagram. Uh, so in those sites, uh, you know, they're not always about coffee. I'm also a food anthropologist, so a lot of my food stories go on to social media as well. Right. Okay. But, uh, so I need to be I need to be better organized. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right. So your Instagram is uh, Mary Corky White and Facebook yes. Mary White. Right. That's okay. right. Great. Wonderful. So, um, yeah, so please keep me posted and maybe you can uh, uh, talk uh, about the updates of new coffee shops or, you know, after Absolutely. COVID situation. All right. So thank you so much. I hope you and your listeners will be in touch with me about your coffee experiences. Mm. Right. Definitely. All right. So, yep. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Well, thank you for the opportunity.
I appreciate it. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatayama.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.